In your book, you say, quote, I am Buddhist and Christian. Jesus is my savior and Buddha is my teacher, end quote. Can you explain yeah. to listeners how you found your way to both? Oh, boy. How long do we have? <laughs> hey, you're listening to Punk Journalism. It's me, Chance. And thanks for listening to my chat with Dwayne Bidwell on his book, When One Religion Isn't Enough, The Lives of Spiritually Fluid People, which Library Journal named a best book of 2018. Bidwell is a professor of practical theology, spiritual care, and counseling at Claremont School of Theology at Williamette University, specializing in both comparative approaches to mental health and spirituality in the Buddhist Christian studies. His expertise includes suicide prevention, spiritual direction, solution-focused therapy, and narrative therapy. Professor Bidwell has written three other books and edited two, including Short-Term Spiritual Guidance, The Formation of Pastoral Counselors, Challenges and Opportunities, and Empowering Couples, a Narrative Approach to Spiritual Care. CST students have given Bidwell teaching and mentoring awards three times since 2014. He's an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church, USA, and practitioner of Vipassana, that's insight meditation, in the Theravada Buddhist tradition. You can also look forward to my conversation with Aaron James, who I previously spoke with about his 2012 book, Assholes, A Theory. Look up that great chat, by the way. We're going to be discussing his 2016 follow-up, Assholes, A Theory of Donald Trump. James is a professor of philosophy at University of California, Irvine. Visit punk-journalism.com to see everything I've done so far, including podcasts and blogs. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay current with what I've got coming up. And finally, subscribe to Punk Journalism on iTunes and rate and review the show. I don't ask for anything other than that, so if you like what I'm doing and you appreciate my work, that would be an excellent way of repaying me. You can also listen to me on SoundCloud and YouTube. So what is your, what is your background in this, in this field? So I have a PhD in uh, pastoral theology and pastoral counseling, which is uh, a subfield within practical theology at the intersection of mental health and spirituality. Uh, and I have worked as a chaplain and a pastoral counselor, a clinic director, um, a parish pastor or congregational pastor, and um, in nonprofit ministry as well, um, HIV/AIDS ministry in the early 1990s. So okay. I have a Master of Divinity degree and a PhD, and I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I'm a practitioner of Theravada Buddhism. Okay, and so what motivated you to write the book? What motivated me to write the book? Um, there, there were several things, but I remember exactly the moment when I decided I should write this book was sitting at a, a panel presentation at the Association of Theological Schools on religious multiplicity or what they were calling um, multiple religious belonging. And listening to scholars talk about uh, that phenomenon and understanding or realizing that what they were saying had um, didn't really reflect the lives of the spiritually fluid people I knew uh, through my clinical practice and through my ministry, or my experience as someone who maintains bonds to more than one religion at the same time. And it was at that moment when I sort of sketched out on a, on a hotel napkin uh, the basic outline of the book uh, to say one of the things that we have to do before we start to evaluate or norm um, complex religious bonds is understand what they are as a human experience. So I wanted to have a book that reflected the experiences of spiritually fluid people 
um, and didn't try to norm their experience against a particular religious tradition or against doctrine before we had a rich description of what it's like to try to navigate between or among um, religious traditions um, simultaneously. So it's really a book that was written um, to allow spiritually fluid people to to share their experience, to um, amplify their voices, and to try to, to deconstruct the idea that um, you know the common academic questions at the time were: uh, Are complex religious bonds possible? And are complex religious bonds right uh, from a theological perspective? And what I wanted to say is that before we ask whether they're possible or they're right, we have to understand. Uh, the voices of the people who are living them. Clearly, they're possible. People all over the world are doing this. And the question about whether or not it's right or or, um, or legitimate um, can't be answered until we know how complex religious bonds function in the lives of spiritually fluid people. And so in the book, you offered an anecdote about a time where you were sitting before a committee who questioned whether or not you believe that Jesus was the only way to salvation, which you said no. Is that the same same occasion? Right. Okay. Is that the same occasion in which I thought of the book? Yeah, no. that kind of was the catalyst to the book. No, no, no. It's just an example of of one of the difficulties that um, spiritually fluid people can have when they're sure. faced with uh, people who are making decisions or who wield social or uh, religious power, and they are not quite sure where to go. That was years before I thought of writing this book. In chapter one, you mentioned spiritually fluid people causing controversies and disrupting the status quo, making people in, uncomfortable in the process. Today, I actually, there's a follower of the podcast. I, I, I think he's more of a troll than he's a follower. And he said, and I, I posed the question, if anybody has any comments or questions for you, to feel free to, to let me know those so I can let you know. And uh, he said that, sp- quote, spiritually fluid is code for total douchebag. I understand your, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's generally how I react to this, this individual as well. But So I completely understand your statement. I wonder if you could explain what you meant here so that people can maybe have a better understanding of of what this is. Um, I think that maybe there is sometimes a stigma that you do address in the book about people being on the fence about, about their beliefs and they just use, you know, spirit, spirituality or spiritually fluid as kind of a cop out. Mm-hmm. So you're asking me to address that statement about spiritually fluid people yeah. disrupting categories and making people uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, you know, in, in a lot of religious communities, there's this idea that you have to be religiously monogamous, that you can only belong to one religion at a time, or that you shouldn't um, question the doctrines of the communities that you're a part of. And what spiritually fluid people do is they cross those boundaries, right? They disrupt the categories that of purity, they disrupt categories of Uh, ultimate truth or saying this religion has the truth and no other religion does. They they blur distinctions between Mm -hmm. certain religious and spiritual ideas, um, and that can make people really uncomfortable. So in the process of sort of um, messing with our categories, spiritually fluid people um, force 
others to face their own fluidities or their own multiplicities, and also to face the ways in which they maybe are not um, acknowledging or respecting their own ambivalencies about their traditions. Everybody is ambivalent about their religious tradition. Mm-hmm. There is some part of it that uh, they don't fit into. And spiritually fluid people tend to, um, just by who they are and the ways that they practice, to point that out to other people. And in communities that have what I would call an exclusivist understanding of their religion, meaning um, this is the only way and and no one else is right before God, uh, spiritually fluid people who would say, I am both Christian and Muslim, um, call that exclusivity into question. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't fit logically with the way uh, doctrine has been presented to the community. And partly the reason that the disruption happens is that in North America or North Atlantic settings, like North America and Europe, we're used to thinking of religion as having to do with belief um, and a, a cognitive assent to a set of propositions or a set of doctrines that we accept as true or that are true for us. And religion is so much bigger than doctrine and belief. Sure. It, it is um, imbued in culture and in relationships and in the way we embody um, our um, relationship to the holy. Uh, it's not just about what we believe. It's about who we are, whose we are, and what we do as well as what we believe. You uh, you mentioned the life of Pi there was a quote from that that is, quote, I just want to love God. There's a character from, from that story who says that. And I think that this, in a nutshell, explains, in my opinion, I think it explains your previous statement very succinctly and easily in a very short, sweet, simple manner. Doesn't it take more of an innocent, almost childlike mind to gravitate towards the simple way of understanding? And it seems almost kind of unnecessary that we overcomplicate things when we we have to feel like we need to adhere to these really religious guidelines and structures all the time. I, I'm not sure that it that you have to have a simple or childlike mind in order to come to the conclusion, I just want to love God. Um, different people approach religion and spirituality through different avenues. And so for some people, uh, engaging the complexities of difference between traditions and so forth is an important part of getting to the point of saying, I just want to love God despite the differences. Uh, other people want to focus just on the emotional or the uh, devotional parts of religion, and so they're not as uh, invested in the debates over doctrine and so forth. Um, or the structures of religious traditions. So I don't know that I would want to to simplify it by saying you got to have a simple childlike mind in order to come to this this stance. I think you can get to that stance through multiple avenues. Um, and it reminds me of a theologian named David Tracy who talked about um, naive religion that then gets more complicated as you enter into it through a critical um uh, reflection on it, but that eventually you move to a second naivete where uh, you can affirm all of the complexity and the critique and still affirm the basic uh, foundational uh, stance of that faith, um, despite knowing all of the um, difficulties and complexities and uh, differences that are mm-hmm. embodied within the tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what I just, I wonder what I keep, what I always come back to is I think that 
as as a people, uh, I think that it's almost in our nature sometimes to just overcomplicate things and make things take simple concepts and and overthink them. And I wonder, and this is just sort of in my personal life, the conclusion that I've come to, can it simply be the focus of acknowledging a higher power and living a good life and being good to those around us? And I see it as much more humble to acknowledge that there may be some sort of cosmic force or being that exists that's controlling everything that we just really simply have very little comprehension of. And to boil that down, that being down to a simple man-made book or, or religion, I wonder if it almost insults the magnitude of what that being is. Mm-hmm. If there is that being, because there are traditions that would say there's no such thing as a god mm-hmm. uh, or an ultimate being or a single ultimate, right? And so um, humility, you know, I, one of the things I teach is into religious care, uh, how to provide spiritual care across religious difference, be that between people of different traditions, meaning uh, a Muslim uh, providing spiritual care to a Jew in a hospital setting, or uh, within the same tradition, people who have radically different understandings of what it means to be Christian, for example, um, is that humility, the being able to accept that what we know or understand about the divine um, doesn't exhaust what the divine is or can be, that we don't have a corner on the truth, but that we see a part of it. We see partially being able to hold your belief lightly and to walk into the beliefs of others humbly, um, always with the assumption that you have more to learn and that uh, actually for me as someone who's a theist and a Presbyterian pastor to say, God might surprise us. We can't, we can't put boundaries on God uh, because God is bigger than all of our boundaries. So within the Christian traditions, of course, there's a long tradition of negative theology or apophatic theology that would say we can only know the truth about God by identifying what we think we know and denying it. So uh, that anything we think we can affirm, we also have to say that doesn't exist or doesn't exhaust the reality of what is holy. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think we do complicate things, and, and in some ways we need to. Religion and spirituality and human experience are complex, and they embody really profound differences. Uh, at the same time, we can't um, make our own understanding ultimate. We have to leave room for learning from others. And we've seen that, say, in the trajectory of the Catholic Church since Vatican II, with the understanding that there may be elements of the truth in other world religions, and Catholics should engage them uh, to learn from them what we don't understand, right? Um, to more contemporary kind of pluralist theologies that would say no one religion is correct, that they all have their own integrity. Yeah. Something that uh, I guess I would challenge you on, I suppose, is is when you say that religion and spirituality are complex, I feel that religion is complex, at least in my own reality and experience that I have. And I feel like once you kind of let go of that, that complex nature, then you store, you kind of open yourself up to the more uh, simplistic view of, of what spirituality is. And 
there's a podcast that I listen to, and, it's, and it deals with a lot of uh, personal development. And and he, this individual, uh, he put it very well, uh, just to cite the podcast. It's called Actualize.org. And he said the way that he distinguishes religion from spirituality is religion is you go to somebody and they tell you, this is what an orange is. It's round, it's sweet, it's juicy, it's a fruit. And you you kind of take his word at it and say, okay, I guess that's what an orange is because that's what that person told me it is. Whereas spirituality is you go out and you, you know, you pick an apple and you say, well, it's round, it's juicy, it's sweet. Um, I don't know. I don't know if this, I guess this is an orange. But then you, you keep on expanding your your experience further until you have a better understanding of of what your your reality is around you. And, and you can kind of... Um, Instinct. I feel like anyway, you can instinctually kind of listen to to the voice of God, or just by by in, inherently kind of knowing what's right and what's wrong. Um, and and I think that a large part of it is 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 being you know open to multiple schools of thought and not being so adherently rigid to to one or the other. Yeah, and and partly, I guess, it depends on what you mean when you you talk about being complicated versus being simple, Chance. Um, so knowing more about how you're using those terms might help me respond mm-hmm. to it. Um, you know, it, it, in the example you gave, you're talking in part about what is a source of spiritual authority, and you're claiming the authority of experience. And that certainly is at the heart of my academic practice and my academic discipline, right? That human experience carries religious and spiritual authority that can talk back to uh, religious um, traditions and religious structures, and that has to be taken into account. But that doesn't mean for me that we can throw out the academic uh, or academic, the religious structures and authorities. Um, the, the wisdom embodied in those traditions is there for a reason, and it is a codification in some ways of human experience with the divine. And so I, I'm not willing to, to boil it all down to human experience. Human experience has to be measured and weighed and assessed by what the tradition has also taught. And then you have to make a judicious call for does the tradition need to change or is this human experience not on target? And mm-hmm. that's where discernment comes in, right? Sure. Yeah. And that's meaning using your own judgment based off your, your experiences, your personal experiences, right? Uh, and using rules from within, or not using the word rules lightly, right? Mm-hmm. Like guidelines from within religious traditions to say um, this honors God or this doesn't honor God. How right? would you, how, um, I'm sorry, how would you um, address somebody who says that this is cherry picking? Because a lot, that is a common argument that you'll hear. That, that, Spiritual fluidity is cherry picking. Yeah, like just kind of picking like you're at a buffet, sure. you're picking like the the things that suit you the best. Yeah, I think certainly there are people with complex religious bonds who who are treating it like a buffet and trying to synthesize together things that don't necessarily go together or that are mutually contradictory and doing it in a way that doesn't honor the complexity of the tradition or the authority of the tradition or the people who who say that they are um, withholding or upholding the tradition, right? Uh, But most of the spiritually fluid people I know are doing it 
with much humility and with much um, um, they're willing to submit themselves to the tradition, to learn it in depth, to affiliate with a community, to follow teachers um, who can correct and hold them accountable um, rather than only honoring the pieces of it that they want to keep. So I think there's a continuum of people who have complex religious bonds. Some of them may um, practice this kind of uh, bricolage or uh, synthesis of taking disparate things and weaving them together in a way that um, makes them feel like they have a grasp on the world. And then there are those who take the tradition seriously and apprentice themselves to them and can say uh, at the same time, I know these two traditions are different and I understand and affirm both of them. In your book, you say, quote, I am Buddhist and Christian. Jesus is my savior and Buddha is my teacher, end quote. Can you explain yes. to listeners how you found your way to both? Oh, boy. How long do we have? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah, in a um, Reader's Digest as, version. Yeah. As a child, I was drawn to kind of more contemplative forms of spirituality and religion, particularly mm -hmm. in nature, and very curious about meditation. But the expressions of Christianity I grew up again, again around didn't um, speak to that way of approaching God. I, no one ever taught me to pray. No one ever taught me about contemplation. No one ever taught me about meditation. And so I was drawn to traditions that kind of highlighted those things or put them uh, forward. And um, in college, took a course in Buddhism and out of that uh, began to practice meditation and to go to the Buddhist temple and study with a monk. Um, and that eventually brought me back to the Christian traditions um, and the mystical contemplative side of Christianity to discover that there are resources and understandings within Christianity that also uh, access that kind of intuitive contemplative relationship. Now, it's different. Christianity uh, conceives of that differently than Buddhism does, but they're similar. Uh, one of my um, one of the people actually that I used to see as a spiritual director, uh, who was a Catholic woman, would would say to me, you know, be careful when you start to pray. You don't know what's going to happen. God used Buddhism to bring you back to Christianity. Um, perhaps that's true, and in some ways I would affirm that that um, God finds ways to catch us or lure us. Um, uh, in the directions that God is inviting us. And so the fact that I was open to Buddhism is the avenue by which I fell into this spiritual stream and identified teachers and sources and texts and practices that were um, validated by communities and that were generative for me and that have become kind of the lifeblood of my spiritual life. Along with that, I, I feel very, very blessed to have somebody in my life, my girlfriend, who I, I personally, I, I see her very much as the embodiment of your book. I think that she would fit very, very well as a case study for what you're talking about. I'm concerned sometimes that many traditional Christians would condemn her because she is spiritually fluid and she experiences a lot of different belief systems. And as far as, I mean, if you take the word Christian and if it means, if it literally means like Christ or Christ-like, she's the most Christ-like or Christian person that I know without strictly adhering to, to religious Christian doctrine. 
Um, so I asked mm-hmm. her, I asked her if she would explain, kind of give me an overview of, of what, you know, where she is on the, on what, you know, her belief systems are on that spectrum. And she says, I haven't really identified with any single one more so just trying to work with and celebrate nature's cycles, mostly lunar, which I, I suppose you could say is Wiccan practicing quote unquote witchcraft to me is more along the lines of incantation and manifestation, but coming from a space of love. And if it is good for all life everywhere, I definitely believe Jesus was real and was a healer, but I don't believe he was what Christianity and most organized religions have portrayed him as Buddhist and yoga mm-hmm. practices make sense to me by means of using those practices to purify and help yourself. So you can mirror that in others. They literally mm-hmm. referred to self-work as, quote-unquote, polishing the mirror, taking responsibility mm-hmm. for our lives and doing the shadow work to, in turn, move more into light and love. And so I think I just mm-hmm. wanted to make note of that just because I think that she's a prime example of somebody who who does um, really observe the best qualities of multiple belief systems. And, um, I mean, she just – I think that her basic philosophy is that she's good to every – she tries, she strives to be good to everybody and offer everybody the same level of respect and, and caring and compassion. And again, that's kind of what I was going back to as far as being mm-hmm. you know, Christ-like in that way. Well, and she's very blessed to have a partner in her life that is open and accepting of that spirituality and able to have conversations with her about it. A lot of spiritually fluid people have to hide parts of who they are or parts of their spirituality in order not to uh, be ridiculed or condemned by the people they love. And so I'm, I'm grateful on her behalf that she's found you as someone who can support that as well. Part of what, when I hear you talk about her is it, it points to, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the idea or the category religion is um, something that was created by the Western Academy mm-hmm. um, a long time ago. And in other cultures, there's not even a word for religion. It is just the spiritual dimension of life. It's a way of life. It's not about belonging. It's not about claiming an identity as a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, those kinds of things. But it's about living in harmony with the principles of these um, spiritual traditions uh, as a way to uh, help the world and other people be better and to help yourself be better. And it sounds Mm -hmm. like that's the way she's approaching it. As far as you saying that I'm I'm blessed that I am accepting of that, like I would say that anybody who doesn't see that as, as a good thing in, in, in recognizing that light in her definitely needs to <laughs> look within themselves because she's, she's a pretty easy person to, to appreciate in that way. Well, um, well, and it, it reminds me of the story in the book, right, where uh, a Christian leader uh, was talking about um, – uh, a journal article I had written where he said what Bidwell talks about is um, skilled ministry and it's compassionate, it's effective, and it's Christ-like, and it's not Christian. Mm-hmm. Right? That right. he had to delineate uh, in there. He could recognize the goodness, but he still, within his perspective, had to decide who was in and who was out. That That is not something that most spiritually fluid people are invested in, deciding who's in and who's out. Um, they're, they're more likely to say, um, if it's life giving and it's not hurting other people, um, then go for it. Yeah. We don't have to decide who's right and who's wrong. So there's a great quote in the book. You categorize these folks as, or you don't, but the 
pop culture does as spiritual, not religious people. It says, quote, spiritual, not religious people reject exclusivism, dogmatism, judgment, and the concept of sin. They advocate for eternal spiritual authority, make pragmatic and therapeutic use of spiritual practice to achieve liberation, and see nature as a source or mediator of spirituality. They have a strong commitment to the universal truth that underlies all religions and see eternal happiness and peace as the ultimate goal of spirituality. One statement that you made was, it's more important to preserve diversity than to be logical. Can you explain that? <laughs> um, I can explain it. That doesn't mean that uh, everyone will accept it, right? Sure, that, absolutely. That if, if the choice is to... Um, We're not here to maintain, change minds, really. Yeah, right. <laughs> if the choice is to maintain logic, meaning a Western philosophical logic based in the Hellenistic thought categories, that if that is, uh, that to me is less important because it's going to force people into categories and it's going to restrict the ways in which we accept them describing themselves or making sense of the world. Um, It is more important to me to let people um, articulate their own perspectives, their own diverse perspectives, um, even if what they're describing seems from some views illogical, right? So to say, I believe Jesus is divine and God, and I practice a faith that does not believe in divinity at the same time, from some perspectives seems illogical. How can you affirm Jesus as God and say you affirm a tradition that doesn't believe in um, a deity? For me, it is more important to preserve the diversity of someone who says, I can hold both of those ideas in my head at once, than it is to force them to be logical from one perspective. There are lots of different systems of logic, and there are things that are uh, beyond logic. And it is important for me that we recognize and affirm the diversity of human experiences, which are built into creation, I would dare say it is a part of what the divine or the holy has has created the world to be. And when we restrict that or we deny that, we are in some ways denying the fullness of the divine. And you say in your book, to go along with that, you say it's dangerous to reduce everything to a logic of the one because the qualities of the ultimate ones look suspiciously like the ultimate reality proposed by the values of the person making the claim to unity. And so yes. I think that kind of ties into that, right, of, of kind of pigeonholing belief systems um, and, and, and setting up those boundaries and those barriers and, and how that is so stifling. Yeah, exactly. And and sometimes when we appeal to the logic of the one, we try to erase all the differences and say the differences don't matter. What matters is what we share. But only a, pers- a person in a position of privilege and power can say the differences don't matter, hmm. right? Okay. To other people, those differences might be really important. And they might, in fact, suggest that it doesn't all come down to a shared common vision, right? Um, and so I want to I preserve the possibility that uh, differences are as important or more important than similarities. What's the benefit of drawing from the best practices of all these religions as opposed to disavowing any religious thought at all? 
So why would I be religious and not not be a religious? Yeah, or even I mean, rejecting any sort of spirituality, religion. Where do you see the benefit in that? Of that, over... maintaining a, a spiritual or religious life. Um, it, for me, it is there has been a lifelong awareness of something more, and um, I can't. Um, I turn to religious traditions as ways of helping me make sense of what that something more is and as tried and true pathways to developing certain characteristics, virtues, attitudes, stances in the world that are beneficial. And um, I think someone can do that without religion, but for me, I need the pathway. I need the, the, um, the, the safety rails that traditions offer me, right? Um, not to box me in, but to help me stay on the path and to keep me safe. Um, in order to be able to take risks, I have to feel safe mm-hmm. in order to, uh, if, but I can't feel too safe or then the risk doesn't mean anything, right? Mm-hmm. So the tradition gives me boundaries to operate within. Uh, for me, that's really important. But there are certainly people who are good and empathic and compassionate and contributing to the, the fullness of life in the world who don't follow a spiritual or religious path. Mm-hmm. All of that said, I would say even people who say they are atheists or agnostic or spiritual but not religious, alongside people who are Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Jewish, all have a religious location they all have been shaped by various religions, and they have attitudes and assumptions and beliefs about those religions. Mm-hmm. Religion shapes all of us. It is always present in our relationships, in our policies, in our institutions, whether we acknowledge it or not. Part of the challenge is to learn to identify how we've been shaped, what our religious location is. Do I feel positively inclined toward religion? Do I feel negatively inclined toward religion? Do I idealize religions or do I demonize religions? Mm -hmm. Because those all have to do with the ultimate values and beliefs and stances we bring into all of what we do in the world. You know, I find it ironic. Um, I'm, I'm really close with somebody who is atheist, and he's honestly the most religious person I know. And in, in what in, way? And that he proselytizes his non-belief. Um, ah, it, okay. And uh, when when you get together with him, it's often like you're kind of bracing yourself, like you're getting together with that relative. That's like, man, I really like Bob, but I hope he's not going to get all churchy on me. Like, I know he just found religion and stuff, but like, I really don't want him to get all preachy and and like pushes mm-hmm. pushes his beliefs on me. Like, I know that's good for him, but like. I it's I don't I don't need that. We can agree that it never really works to push your beliefs on on somebody. It's the same vibe. Like he's the exact same kind of person, just on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. So I it's it's sort of an ironic thing. So I think that a lot of times we get so steeped in ideologies like atheism, conservatism, liberalism, libertarianism, any other ism, that all they almost kind of become their own religion. Wouldn't you say so? Perhaps. It reminds me of the, a quote from the poet May Sarton, who said, We convert, if we do at all, not by asking the impossible, but by being irresistible. That 
that trying to convert people by telling them what they need to be or do in the world is rarely as effective as being in a way that they are just attracted and drawn to, that they want to be like. Mm-hmm. And that um, setting up an impossible ideal and telling people that's what you need to strive for is far less persuasive than just being the type of person you would hope other people would also be. Yeah, absolutely. In the world. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and that's how I distinguish my lady friend that I had mentioned before uh, compared to this person where the latter person I spoke about, he is very, very stern in, in making sure that you understand that his, his way is the right way and that's the only way to believe. And my lady friend, I know that she understands that the only person that she can, she can change at the end of the day is herself. And it's a, it's a futile right. waste of energy to try to change anybody else. So she's a good steward. Yes. She's a good steward of herself and, and her environment. Consequently, everywhere she goes, everybody lights up when she's around and, 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 and are better for having been around her. And I think that her inf- she's influenced more people just by being that way than I think most people I know combined have. And it's just so much more effective. And I think that it's, uh, it's a lot less consuming of your own life force and energy <laughs> as opposed to the other, the other method. Uh, I'd love for you to let us know where you can find, where, where we can find your work and anything else that you have coming up in the future. Great. I'm so grateful for the invitation, Chance, and the conversation. Yeah, no, uh, I, I don't well. have any speaking engagements coming up at the moment, but I'll let you know if they come up in the future. And I hope you'll let me know when the podcast goes live and uh, the link I can use to, to send to others and so forth. Great. No, I appreciate that. 